Welcome to episode two of PodPast, where history teachers and students are talking history. I am one of your co-hosts, Miss Winnie. I'm Lafayette. And Inez. And on today's episode, we are talking about right-hand men or women of history. So that special someone that has assisted another special somebody in being awesome, historically speaking. Uh, I think all all three of our people today are American, uh, yes? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and we'll also be talking to some students in the middle of the episode for another segment of student speaking. Uh, the excitement over Hamil- Hamilton is palpable. Students are... Hammy fever. Has <laughs> oh. struck the nation. They're singing, on. singing right-hand man as we speak. And then we'll have some juicy history for you after student speaking, where we'll kind of tell a fun story about... Maybe not a right-hand man, but a right-hand pet. (laughs) (laughs) With a voracious vocabulary. Yes. Good stuff coming up. So who's starting us out here? I'm going to start again today with the one and only Abigail Adams. I know. The woman that that, uh, Winnie was referencing. Yes. Um, So, I mean, I don't think that this is a surprise to many people, but... She was the right-hand woman to uh, her husband, John Adams, through his entire career when, you know, before he was super politically involved, when he was just a lawyer, and when he was vice president, when uh, he was a diplomat in Europe, when he was president, uh, she was there by his side through it all. Um, They actually linked up when she was a teenager, 17, Mm. got married when she was 19, first met when she was 15. Lovebirds. Lovebirds. Which back then would have been like... Pretty normal. 15 back then was like 25. It's like the new 25. The clock is ticking. Yeah. (laughs) But they met actually through her studies in a roundabout way, and uh, I guess that he was taken by her intellect, her beauty and her intellect, and so that sort of set the stage for like, you know, I I need a ride-or-die chick who can help edit my speeches and she might be it and look um, good doing it I sounded really lame saying that but you know what I mean yeah no she'd no. be a great editor yeah great great editor look at, the, look at those eyes those hands imagine the speeches she could revive <laughs> so she she wasn't like educated formally just by her her family her grandmother and her mother but she was I guess um, a really smart woman and a strong writer and um, so one of the greatest things that came out of their relationship from from like a history nerd point of view is the letters that they wrote back and forth to one another because you see their entire marriage and like his entire political career and the country and this great time of change like from the the declaration and the revolution and early presidential administrations which is pretty neat but she would write him like eight pages and then he would write back like 14 lines and she'd be like you're killing me John write to me a little bit more because they would be physically far away from one another a lot of the time and so she would say here's what's going on um, in Massachusetts like I heard you did this maybe you should have done it a little differently he would send speeches that he was going to give letters that he was going to send and she would offer feedback and was sort of famous for like saying you know 
you sound sort of pompous or this is like too long-winded. You should simplify a little bit, John. Like everyone's just going to tune you out if this is what you say. Um, She also really heavily influenced some political decisions that he made. I mean, she's famous for her little remember the ladies, which he thought was a bit of a joke and, you know, didn't really remember the ladies and his policies but what did she mean by that because that's like a really famous yeah. line yes uh. so um she was talking about um so this takes place at the i think the first continental congress mm-hmm. and she's saying as you're talking about freedom and, and rights for people don't forget about women that if you give all the power to husbands men are likely to be tyrants and that you know women should be an equal ground and equal footing as male counterparts and don't just assume that to be true don't just say men include women um he did not they did not <laughs> all men are created equal uh, well all men yeah all right. men are created equal and, but she actually, like, the lines that follow that in the letter are kind of most interesting to me, where she says, you know, women are not going to follow any laws that they when, when they are not represented well in them. And she's, like, taking a piece right out of, like, the Declaration and this relationship between the colonies and Britain. Like, they're not going to follow any laws that they didn't help to develop. Women are not going to follow these laws. They don't have to. She said, essentially, we'll rebel against you. Which mm-hmm. should be, according to the Enlightenment, justifiable to do. Indeed, indeed. Um, So they write thousands of letters, over 1,000 letters, back and forth. Um, And and so, you know, not only suggesting things that he should do and the political front and editing his his work, but um, she also just managed a lot of things on the home front when they were away. They had four children that lived, um, so she was like, mom to them, that's a lot of work. She, women (laughs) Just a minor job. Yeah, I know. And you think about that, like, that's full-time right there. She managed the farm, like, they were responsible responsible for their own sustenance. She made financial decisions, which was super uncommon. And um, even though she wasn't the property owner, she acted like the property owner. She kept everything afloat back home um, when she was away and John was away from her. And um, I actually, I don't, if I have the time, I have a little quote from her that I really liked. Oh, lay it on us. Okay. So this is just kind of their interconnectedness. Um, This is like a letter that she writes to him in this time of transition from being vice president to a president. And she said, my mind has ever been interested in public affairs, but I now find that my heart and soul are for all that I hold dearest on earth is embarked on the wide ocean and in a hazardous voyage. May the experience, wisdom, and prudence of the helmsman conduct the vessel in safety. I am as ever a fellow passenger. And he responds to her and he closes his next letter to her that um, I never wanted your advice and assistance more. Yeah, I know. So sweet. precious. I know. That is, when you think about how intelligent she is, it's almost like I wonder if you would have put her in modern times. I guess it just shows, like, even though she had no formal education, how much she depended on her mm-hmm. for, again, advice, editing, what's that like? Arguments and yes, I mean, he took her advice so seriously, which you don't normally see. A lot of times back then, women were like second class citizens. Absolutely. Well, you know, and this backfired too because his opponents later on would say things like Mrs. President, you know, calling her <laughs> Mrs. President and that she was outspoken and overly involved. And, and she admitted that sometimes, you know, she had a hard time keeping her mouth shut. And she said, you know, I don't like to have to, now that now that he's president, I have to censor everything I say when I want to be able to speak freely. And I'm not really good at doing that. Like I have to speak my mind. And she was a champion for women's rights and for emancipation and ending slavery and um, 
that those weren't always popular things. Yeah, I one one thing I I read a book on uh, John Quincy Adams once, and one of the things that fascinated fascinated me was not just her as a, a spouse, but as a mother, um, because Quincy was aspired to be kind of like his father very early on as a teenager. He wanted to get into politics, so he would travel with John mm-hmm. uh, to Europe, and you know he would he would dine and things like that. And in some of her letters, if you read them, I mean she is. Uh, she is really the taskmaster. She, in one letter, she pretty much says, "You know, if you were to embarrass our family, I'd rather you sink in the ocean <laughs> than return." Uh, and so that's very yeah, that's yeah, very Spartan of her. You know, <laughs> like come back with your shield or on it. Yeah. Um, so she's just like kind of this incredibly strong figure. Where in early American history, not a lot of women are no. written about in this way. Where she's kind of guiding political conversation and within her own family as well. She's she's really cool. Yep. Love she her. Is. Cool. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, MVB, or you guys might know him better as the eighth president of the country, Martin Van Buren. Uh, he is, so his relationship I'm going to look at is one with Andrew Jackson, our seventh president. So two presidents here who kind of uh, made it possible for each other to do terrible things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so Martin Van Buren, uh, you know, these two guys, Van Buren and Jackson, Uh, What they're maybe best known for is being the creators of the modern Democratic Party, which is uh, nothing to sneeze at. It's pretty significant. Uh, And so just the fact that they found each other. Martin Van Buren is a pretty – he's born in America. He's a little Dutch boy, though. His his family is from Europe, and uh, he doesn't speak English growing up. He, he, you know, he speaks mostly German, and uh, he's raised in a tavern in New York in uh, Old Kinderhook. And so he has this kind of really weird upbringing – uh, a very northern upbringing. When then you have Jackson, this this kid who's also not very rich. He loses his father early on. He loses his mother and his brother during the American Revolution to the British, and so that these forces would come together because they also are just so distinctly different. Um, Van Buren is described as kind of a shorter, um, pudgier type, <laughs> and Jackson is a general. He is he is tall and lean and very stoic looking and so that that these two would also come together as a bit of an odd couple uh but it's like danny devito and arnold schwarzenegger and twins <laughs> that's, right. that's what yeah. i'm picturing right now like yeah. big buff yeah. general and squatty penguin <laughs> <laughs> but they're both schemers so 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 van buren is actually he's one of two of only our presidents to never have a college or military no college no military um, and Jackson does have military, no college, uh, and um, you know they both kind of have to find their way. So Jackson finds his way through the military, but Van Buren is just a schemer. He's always plotting, and so part of this is he knew that he could gain power if he could bring someone else to power. So he creates this Democratic Party for years, uh, hating people like John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, and he sees Jackson this the people's hero and he says I will wield mm. this man to be the uh, the perfect yes <laughs> yes so he is you know they called him the little magician uh, that was his nickname that he was always behind the scenes manipulating things uh, and he enjoyed that he enjoyed being the guy kind of making the history happen even if he wasn't getting the credit so he seeks out Jackson and Jackson's kind of weary of him um, but one thing that united these two is that they're both widowers um, in fact, um, we, it's pretty famous that Rachel uh, Jackson died um, in the midst of the campaigning for president against John Quincy Adams, and Jackson famously blames 
um, Quincy Adams for the death of his wife, and Van Buren loses his wife very early in life. In fact, we may know the least about her of any first lady. Um, so they, they kind of are brought together by some commonalities in their life. Um, there's one quote here I love um, from someone who knew the two guys. This is from a, a book called Martin Van Buren. It's by, by Ted Widmer. Uh, and there's a quote here from Davy Crockett who uh, described the two. Uh, he says, Van Buren is as opposite to Jackson as dung is to a diamond. Uh, and so, and so, so pretty, it really bothered people that these two had found each other, but pretty much they made it possible. Uh, Van Buren creates the Democratic Party, and Jackson uh, is the face of it. And for eight, really 12 years, because Jackson has an eight years as president and Van Buren is, uh, has four years, um, they make it possible uh, for each other. So Jackson's kind of the outgoing face of everything while uh, Van Buren is behind the scenes. And they become best friends. Um, Jackson spends more time with Van Buren than anyone. Uh, their families uh, spend time together. Um, so they really were, um, they were tight in pretty much everything they did. Their policies lined up, whether it was the destroying of the bank, and of course, the worst of all, the kind of um, they both agreed upon the Indian Removal Act, uh, implemented both during Jackson and Van Buren's presidency. Um, but it's these two guys who give us the modern Democratic Party, uh, an odd couple if there ever was one. But, um, you know, we are still living with the Democratic yeah. Party. Uh, yeah. Which I don't think quite looks the same. No. In fact, uh, when Van Buren was creating the Democratic Party, uh, he liked that Jackson was a Southerner. And so the idea was that Southerners didn't really have their own party. There were, at the time, there was the Democratic Republicans, which had been a really heavily Northern party, and Southerners were looking for something. So Jackson is this war hero. He identifies as a Southerner. He also recruits people like John C. Calhoun, which, by the way, Calhoun is Jackson's vice president, who will be replaced by Van Buren. Uh, you know, Calhoun smells uh, nepotism, things like that. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm getting the visual of John C. Calhoun in my brain. Yeah, yeah. So he he recruits these southern these southern guys to kind of be the party, but th that certainly has switched. I mean, the dynamics in America now is that we know that in the South it's much more Republican, mm -hmm. uh, in the North it's much more Democrat. So certainly things have changed over time, but um, it starts as kind of a southern based party, and it will destroy the Democratic Party or Democratic Republican Party. And uh, we'll get the Whigs uh, to, yeah. to pretty much try to take down Jackson and Van Buren. But um, yeah, I just love those two guys. They're just they're just. <laughs> they sound like real nice guys. I don't like I don't I don't totally appreciate what they stood for, but um, they I like that like two people so different in politics came together and mm -hmm. created something. An unlikely partnership. We could benefit from a little bit more of that now if the policy decisions were a right. little bit better than right. what they made. A little, a little creative action. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They did have a little falling out at the end, by the way, I should say. Oh, do tell. Um, when Jackson, or I'm sorry, when Van Buren was president, he had a chance to annex Texas, uh, but Van Buren refused to do it because of the slavery question. He didn't mm -hmm. really want to face it of what would Texas be, slave or free, while Jackson was adamant that annexation should happen, Jackson being a uh, supporter of slavery. Um, and so Van Buren's refusal to come around on annexation caused kind of a split with the two. Um, I think, and I'm, I'm not as much of an expert about Van Buren, but wasn't he like super reluctant to be the president? Like I think the president that would be in the seat when Civil War went down, I think like, 
the Civil War was already kind of stewing and brewing, and I think it was kind of like a hot potato act where, like, no president wanted to be the one there. Yeah, Van Buren's interesting because reluctance is a good word because he Mm -hmm. has so many ideas and he wants to manipulate, but he doesn't really want to be the person doing the manipulating. So Jackson endorsed him as president, and everybody followed Jackson's recommendation, but Van Buren's really uncomfortable with that that power, I think. (laughs) Too much power right there. That is fun. I love unlikely duos, though. Mm-hmm. I feel like they make the best story. So I guess I'll segue into mine. I have two, I guess, kind of unlikely duo who will also have a falling out, and the the good news is they'll have a reconciliation at the end. But um, my two friends that I'm going to talk about are William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, who are two of probably the most famous abolitionists in the history of abolitionism, if that's even a word. But um, so the two meet in 1841 at a meeting where Garrison is give he's headlining because back in the day before you had concerts like it would be like a speaking headlining. So Garrison was doing a headline speech for the American Anti-Slavery Society. Um, just a little background on him: he was again an avid abolitionist. He had a newspaper called the Liberator, which is probably one of the most famous abolitionist newspaper. He used to send a copy of it to every single member of Congress every week for I think it was 30 years. Wow. That's dedication right yeah. there. So, um, but he's doing this speech, and somehow, some way, Frederick Douglass gets asked. He's Frederick Douglass. It's not even his real name. It's a pseudonym because he was a runaway slave, and he didn't want to get caught. So he kind of was operating under a fake name. And somebody kind of gets him to go tell his story on stage, and he tells just basically an impromptu summary of like his life as a slave, how he escaped, and people were just like minds blown, freaking ridiculously like. <gasps> And, and we're riveted because I think it's one thing for somebody to get up there and talk about why slavery is bad, but to have an actual runaway slave give their firsthand account was just like gobsmacking. So the two become really good friends, and they start going on these like dual speaking engagements together. So Garrison would get up and speak, and he would kind of criticize racism even in free states and racism within the government. And then... Um, Frederick Douglass would tell his story, and then he would criticize racism in white churches. Both were really big supporters for women's rights. Um, then Garrison invites Douglass to come work for him at the Liberator. So there, he and he actually gets he gets charged with some crimes for publishing. He he really he basically acts as like his mentor, and he wants Frederick to publish his story because he thinks like you know it's not it's more to just speak. We need to like get it out there, and the Liberator is the first group like the first place to publish Frederick Douglass Douglass's life and sorry and um he gives his money like Garrison remains pretty poor throughout most of his life because he kind of donates all his money to the movement and he's gonna any money that they make off of Douglass's story because it sells like hotcakes people are going crazy over this firsthand account and so he actually gets charged with crimes for publishing this story mm. because of the Fugitive Slave Act and it's kind of like you're aiding and abetting this fugitive. What is the Fugitive Slave Act? Well, the Fugitive Slave Act, for those of you that don't know, is, um, I guess it would be a law that came out. Basically what it says is that if a slave runs away and goes to the north where there is no slavery, or goes to a place where there's no slavery, the slave owner has the legal right to go get their property back. It's kind of like if somebody, they, I mean, it's scary to think of it this way, but if someone would steal something from your house, you have the right to go try to get that item back. They looked at slaves as property, so 
you know, they didn't see anything legally or constitutionally wrong with the fact that if somebody's taken your property or your property has gone, you can go try to retrieve it. So it basically makes it so there really isn't a free state because really anybody, like it doesn't matter if there's no slavery in Massachusetts, if I'm a slave owner and my slave has ran away there, I can legally go back and get it, even though that slave would technically be free because they're living in a free state. I'm, I'm sure, like, the enforcement of that in the North is going to be pretty complex, and I'm sure that Garrett's oh, yeah. like, whatever, I don't, <laughs> right. I'm going to ignore this. Oh, yeah, so he, um, he, to help, once the story comes out, there's this fear that his, Douglas's former masters are going to recognize him and recognize his story, so they actually... Um, Garrison helps arrange from some wealthy abolitionists in Massachusetts to fund um, Douglas's journey. They send him to England to do a speaking tour. And while he's there, because um, Garrison is very much doesn't, refuses to like pay or have anybody, like um, some people like buy, like some abolitionists would buy slaves and then free them. He refused to give any money to people that have anything to do with slavery because he's like, you're paying for their sins. So he actually goes and joins Gar- or Garrison goes to England and joins Douglas, and together while they're there, he helps him raise the rest of his money so he can buy his freedom. So when he comes back, he's free and he doesn't have to worry about you know the Fugitive Slave Act anymore. So things are going good between the two of them. They're kind of tag teaming, they're mentoring each other, and then in 1848, Frederick Douglass publishes his own abolitionist newspaper that he calls the North Star. And oh, this is man. where this is where things start to go downhill. <laughs> it Dra- doesn't help. Oh, go ahead. No, just drama. Oh, <laughs> super drama. So it doesn't help that at the time, right shortly before it comes out, they were on this engagement and Garrison got sick and Douglas left early to go back home and kind of like left Garrison there in his mind, you know, like kind of abandoned him. And then a few weeks later, you know, this new newspaper comes hmm. out. So at first... You know, Garrett, there's three things that kind of cause them to have a riff. The first one is, and the biggest one is this publishing of the newspaper. And the Liberator eventually will give, like, a very favorable review to the North Star. But I think that Garrison saw it as a betrayal. Like, you know, you used to work with me. We used to be, like, this dynamic duo. And whereas Douglas, to his credit, is kind of like, and his quote was, I was growing and I needed room. He got sick of, and this is kind of a summary, but he kind of got sick of just getting up and merely telling his story. He wanted to do more, and I think he kind of felt stifled. Um, Some people actually accuse Garrison of being kind of paternalistic, like you're using him to get up there and talk, but that's kind of a whole other debate. But... um, he he never kind of got over that. And the second thing was, too, Douglas, you know, as he started to do more speaking engagements and get more involved with the cause, his, his ideas started to change, whereas Garrison was not, he's a little more rigid in his beliefs, whereas Douglas, I would venture to say, is a little more flexible. So another big thing was the constitutionality, I hope I said that right, constitutionality mm-hmm. of slavery. So, like, Garrison believes that the Constitution protects slavery, and the only way to get rid of it is to completely rewrite the Constitution. Whereas Douglas says that he believed that when the framers of the Constitution were originally coming up with it, slavery was like this quick compromise. They didn't intend for it to last as long. So he believed that Congress had the power to end slavery, that the power was still there because slavery was unconstitutional. So you don't have to rewrite the whole Constitution. You can just abolish slavery and he will go on to support the Republicans and then work kind of closely with Abe Lincoln which I'm sure I mean I would be jealous if you were cool with Abe Lincoln I'd be like wow you know so he he starts to work um closely with Abraham Lincoln and you know 
has some influence on his policies. And I think Garrison's feeling a little jealous at this point. And then the last big, big um, kind of crossroads with him is violence. Garrison has some Quaker tendencies, and he is a pacifist through and through. The only way that he somewhat supports the Civil War is when one of his sons joins. Mm-hmm. And whereas Douglas has not one but two sons yeah. in the Massachusetts 54th, which is the first all-African-American fighting unit, which he kind of helped come to fruition, so or he helped persuade Lincoln to allow African-Americans to fight. So I think that with the politics, the changing ideas of politics and the changing ideas on violence, Douglas will also go on to praise John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which was controversial in itself yes. at the time. Um, but he, Douglas looks at the Civil War as like a defensive war, and I think that Garrison is so, again, rigid in his ideas of pacifism. pacifism. So those three things combined is kind of the undoing of their decade-long friendship, and it's kind of because they have, you know, competitive newspapers it's kind of like a very public riff so again and there there's some debate over you know some people accuse garrison of being kind of racist or paternalistic where he's trying to you know just you he doesn't want african americans to actually like lead the movement he just wants to use them to help tell their story but there's a lot of debate about that and and douglas is is very generous in his praise for garrison and helping him get started i think and this is just my humble opinion i think what happens is um think that Douglas just becomes a little bit more an actual face of the movement because unlike Garrison he lived it he was a runaway slave yeah so I think he gets a little more clout in that but that's not to downplay what Garrison did Garrison kind of gave him the platform and and Douglas kind of took it above and beyond but when they do actually come back together what happens is Garrison passes away and none other than Frederick Douglass eulogizes him. Uh-huh. And he is, he, and in some of his later biographies or autobiographies, and he will write some very, very kind words about you know, his relationship with Garrison. So it didn't end on a bad note. Unfortunately, they didn't reconcile you know, when Garrison was still alive. But they're still very, you know, they, both of them spoke extremely fond of one another. And, but yeah, I think it's cool that you have these two people that from very different backgrounds but have this absolutely burning desire to eliminate slavery and kind of when you think about abolitionists those are the two immediately that kind of pop into mind so yeah I I wish I could get inside Garrison's mind a little bit more like and it's easy for me to say but I would think that competition wouldn't bother him so much if this message of abolition was being spread unless it Mm -hmm. wasn't it, the message wasn't exactly to his liking. So. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the same, too, because you would think that the more the merrier. And he yeah. did support other um, – there was one called – I think it was called, like, in New York, the Ramshorn, which was an African-American-run newspaper. He was all about African-American entrepreneurship. And some of the things in his first few – I mean, even in his first few publications were all about having equality between the races. He was a really big proponent of – of African Americans and whites working together to try to eliminate this common evil. But I think when it gets down to it, when it's someone who's your friend maybe that runs another newspaper that did take away subscribers, it's kind of, I know, I'd like to think that he was above that, but I think it was the perfect storm of that and just maybe a little jelly of some of them. (laughs) I don't know. But Uh, three good stories. Three, um, powerful you know like in this case a woman who created an opportunity for her husband to do 
to be successful yeah, to, to be do what a, he did. Right, right. And it had it been a different time, I think we'd be looking at Abigail as like a political force. Yes. And then you got Martin and you got Martin and Andrew, the odd couple, the cre- man behind the curtain, creating political parties and creating a weird dynamic in politics. Um, and then two two intellectual forces, uh, just kind of they're on the same team. They're just it's, al- it's almost like a like friends who break up over like a business or like a like a. Yeah, like I guess it would just be like come a to an agreement. Over I think the also I look at both of them as being such tour de forces with just their brains and their speaking abilities that I don't yeah. know how you could even have. No, I mean, can you yeah, imagine like a hot ticket? Like that would that would be like the Lollapalooza of abolitionist speakers to have both of them together would be like unreal. So I think it's almost like too much to contain. Right. Yeah, they almost had to go. And their unreasonable own way. to expect that they would maintain it forever. Stay yeah. together. Yeah. Well, we wanted to get the opinions of students on um, Alexander Hamilton, who's become become very popular these days due to the play Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And we have some students who are big fans of that play, and so we wanted to see if they could tell us a little bit about how Hamilton was perhaps Washington's right-hand man. Um, so we're going to do a little segment here called Student Speaking. Yeah, we are. Student Speaking. Welcome to the student speaking section, everyone. We are joined today by a couple of Hamilton fans because when we talk about right-hand men, who else comes to mind but the Alexander Hamilton? So we're going to go around and introduce our special guest today. Eliza. Mulligan. Lexi. Peggy. Lawrence. Angelica. And of course, we're here too. Lafayette. <laughs> I'm taking this so smart, I'm ready to go to the face. And I'm never going to stop looking at the face. Okay. Sorry, Lafayette. Yeah, it's okay. It just brings it out in us. Appropriate for today. So, the topic on the table we've been talking about right hand men today, or women. Uh, and we know that you guys enjoy Alexander Hamilton, the man, perhaps the play, but I like to think just the guy. Uh, and so. What uh, what about Alexander Hamilton makes him uh, a really good right-hand man in history? Anybody can chime in. I think it's just that like he likes to speak his mind, and he doesn't like care what anyone else really thinks. No filter. Yeah, yeah. he's very no he's filter. Very de- he's very dependable. Yeah. Yeah, you can always count on him. He had really direct um, conversations with like Washington and Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Um, is, any examples of how like Hamilton? helped our country the banks okay mm-hmm. i just like, like hey how, we need I mean, a government where we kind of like the entire financial system i guess mm-hmm. yeah right yeah. could we call hamilton america's right hand man mm. no not really <laughs> why not he wasn't that great of a guy i mean uh, he did have his yeah he had his he definitely had his scandals. Mm-hmm. Mm. We all know Reynolds pamphlet. Pamphlet. The Reynolds pamphlet. Uh, just just one example. Just, one just, of many. But I guess that goes back to a question we, we talked about in class. Is he still worth celebrating even though he's done bad things? Mm-hmm. Does his yeah. good outweigh the bad? Yeah. I feel like his good outweighs the bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like just for his situation. No, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Do you think when we talk about right hand men and women, we were talking about how one person couldn't have been as successful without the other? Is there an example or a time that sticks out to you when we're listening to Hamilton, especially with the song Right Hand Man? Do you think that 
George Washington and or America would have been as successful if it had not been for Hamilton's help? Like, what's something he did that really made him right-hand man worthy? Hamilton nuts. Tell us. <laughs> he helped. Like, he just, like, hey, I can help you. Who's this? Think of the song Right Hand Man. What Technically, George Washington wanted him. In that he was just trying to. He was just trying to be on the field, on the battle. And but George Washington wanted him to be his right hand man and to like stay inside and like write. Yeah. But Burr wanted to be Washington's right hand man. So. That's ended up in a rivalry. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A big but, one. But that's an interesting point that George Washington wanted Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Most people were clamoring to you know be in the eye of George Washington. Look at me. <laughs> but it was it was Washington that was looking at Hamilton and wanting him. Why? What do you think uh, drew Washington to Hamilton? You said like he's he's outspoken, but what else about him? Probably his modest. writing. He's uh, very modest. Modest. It could be like could be. where he came from. Like he literally rose from nothing. Yeah, like he's, sure. he's determined. Like he just wants freedom, basically. Beautiful. <laughs> Thinking of this song, Right Hand Man, like, what are some of the things he does? Like, the challenges at that time that were facing England, or I'm sorry, facing America, where they have what? Nothing. 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 Like, they have, they're outgunned. So what does what does Hamilton do to help that, do you think? He brings up his friends. He's like, hey, we can just have these guys come in and fight the war. Like, just gets yeah. a bunch of people together and makes a plan. He brings his other immigrant friends. Speaking of which, in honor of, of one of our hosts here, do you think Lafayette was the better right-hand man to Washington than Hamilton? I feel like... Um, in a way, probably. I feel like... Okay. I think they I feel both like brought different... Washington's right-hand man was Hamilton, and then Hamilton's right-hand man was Lafayette. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Do explain... <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so like, well, George, well, George. I don't feel like there's really like I don't know. This is just me. I don't feel like there's a connection between like George Washington and Lafayette in a way, though. That's true. Because I could, Hamilton yeah. was always in the middle. Yeah, he was like the middleman. I feel like honestly, with the whole who was a better right hand man, they both have their pros to helping America. Like Lafayette went and brought more guns and ships to America to help them out. And so the balance would shift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Hamilton definitely did provide a lot of things for America as well. But the but thing like, is, is that Lafayette wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Hamilton. That's true. true. Lafayette wasn't really a right-hand man, though, because like when it came time for Washington to help Lafayette, ran the other way. Like They didn't help France fight the war. Uh. That's true, because Hamilton was Do you think that that's, that's the way a right-hand man relationship goes, that you help me and then I promise to help you in return? I mean... Does it have to be reciprocal? I, mean, there should I be feel something. like it should be some. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Lafayette, you're a big fan of Lafayette. Yeah. What do you think? I think... Um, Is he the better right-hand man? I know there's, like, so many writings where he, he talks to, about George Washington as being, like, a father figure. Mm-hmm. I think both Hamilton and Lafayette view Washington as mm-hmm. kind of a father figure. But um, I think the, to, the, re- to the revolution and to the country, uh, Lafayette was more critical as far as bringing aid. Um, so like, as, from a strategic standpoint, Lafayette was, I think, the better right-hand man. And then I think down the line, Hamilton will be the better right-hand man. I think like for Washington's future, Hamilton is better. But for the immediate revolutionary time period, mm-hmm. 
Lafayette was the better for the revolution, Hamilton better for the future. Both, both needed. So they're like the right and left hand men. <laughs> All three holding hands. <laughs> uh, well, how about like in your own lives? What is someone? Or you don't have to name anybody, but um, what is something you would look for in someone that you would call a right hand man or girl, boy, lady, <laughs> woman? What finds at the table? Ooh. What? Finds at the table. Oh. Uh, Peggy down here. <laughs> <laughs> Got an uh, Peggy is definitely my right hand woman, tiny person. Uh, <laughs> oh. Oh. It's true. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, Peggy's always been there. <laughs> I can't help thinking. Um, she's always been there for me. I so. think like a right hand man is or woman is like someone that you can depend on and like tell anything without like them saying anything like to anyone judgment. else. Yeah, without like judging secrecy. You. Yeah. Someone that's like there to help you whenever you need it, even if it's not something that like you agree with, sort of. Mm. Kind of like loyalty, I guess. I think I that the comment about not having judgment, that, that's interesting to me because I think sometimes my, my right hand man probably can be a little judgmental when it comes to things, but they're not afraid to speak their mind if they think they're helping me to make a good decision hmm. in my life. You know, they withhold that personal judgment, but they'll lay it all out there, <laughs> even if I don't like the information, which I think is really important with a political... Being able know, to be polite. Being like, able to be polite. I mean, said, honest. Honest, yeah, be honest. Like, dipl diplomatically so. Mm -hmm. Here's why this policy is not a good one and why you need to really listen to me and not to him. And when you think back on Hamilton, how many times he did have to, or people were totally against him and he had to convince them, even though it was not necessarily the popular thing. I think or that, the times he never listened to anyone. <laughs> yeah. He could be stubborn. Oh, for but I, sure. I think if you, in terms of right-hand men, I think Inez brings up a good point, which is you have to be able to be honest in withholding and maybe personal judgment and look at the greater good, as Rousseau would say. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to put another cool French name out there. <laughs> <laughs> the whole like Hamilton and Lafayette, like who's the better right hand man? Hamilton definitely had an issue saying <coughs> no to people. Like he always did things for people and didn't, I feel like he didn't completely get what he should have gotten back in return. He, he definitely gave more than he received, hmm. but he definitely never said no to people which caused a lot of issues in his life but he was very determined still so i feel like that kind of balanced everything out what do you think he would think of now if he was he would hate the world he would definitely. yeah he would definitely even though he has a really cool play named after him really how why so it's like I don't know how to explain it. Well, it's things are kind of falling apart and going downhill, I feel like, than what he actually wanted. Yeah. yeah. I think he wanted But, like, I think he, he definitely did want, like, everyone to have freedom. And, like, I think the majority of us here do. That's a beautiful... <laughs> that might be a beautiful way to wrap it up. Yeah. Everybody just wants a little freedom. Yeah. <laughs> and a little song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you guys talking to us a little bit about Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And maybe you guys will stop back to talk to us about something else someday. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> okay, and we're back. Uh, we really appreciate all their input. Yeah, that was some great stuff. It's great to hear from our students, always. Now yeah. that right-hand man song is going to be in my head all day. <laughs>
Have you seen Hamilton? No. Let's not talk about it. I'm I was going to say, I have relatives that have gone who, I've had students who have sent me pictures of themselves at Hamilton, which was just salt in my wound. Every time I see a t-shirt in my classroom, I just want to cry. (laughs) The the closest I came was when we went to our trip to New York, and we went down the side street where the theater is, and we could see just a line of people waiting to try to get tickets. I mean, that was like at like 11 in the morning. So that's the closest I've came. I've touched it. I've seen it. But not in the flesh. Sorry. Uh, well, we do have a little juicy history before we go. Ooh. I can't wait for this. <laughs> okay, so today's juicy history is a story about a pet, a presidential pet. And so we were talking a little bit about Andrew Jackson, and uh, he had a pet parrot by the name of Pole, P-O-L-L. And apparently this was a pet that he had bought for his wife, Rachel. Um, though Rachel passed away, Andrew became kind of the main caretaker of Pole, uh, <laughs> and they had a very uh, unusual pet owner relationship in that J- Jackson taught the parrot to swear, to curse a lot. <laughs> uh, and so many people were entertained by Pole, and it turns out that when Jackson passes away uh, in the late 1840s, there's a big, of course, funeral for the ex-president, and it's decided that Pole should be at the funeral. Who decides to bring in the parrot? Like, was this, did he write this? Did Jackson write this like a wish? Like, and may Pole be present? I like to think it's his dying words. (laughs) Make sure Pole is there. (laughs) So I want to just read an excerpt from a primary source, someone who was at the funeral. This is a quote saying, Before the sermon and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household (laughs) pet got excited and commenced swearing so loud and long as to disturb the people and had to be carried from the house. The Reverend Normand goes on to report that the presidential parrot was, quote, excited by the multitude and let loose perfect gusts of cuss words. People were horrified and awed at the bird's lack of reverence. <laughs> I love, so, again, the expectation that a parrot is to behave. Solemn yep. and reverent. <laughs> Dare you not bring your reverence. Um, so Pole was kicked out of the funeral. And I, I like to think that Jackson would be very pleased. I think he would. Yeah. I think <laughs> Pole probably knows his, his, his friend better than anybody else. And he knows that yeah. that's what he would have wanted. <laughs> To send him out in gusts what about everybody of else that is there at the funeral, the <laughs> memorial, and they're like, did you, did that bird just say what, what I think that bird just said? Did you hear that? <laughs> Who had to carry him out, too? I picture him like his wings cuffed, yeah. <laughs> hand over the beak. Anybody who wants to visualize, this is, this is a, uh, let me see, Pole was a gray African parrot? Yeah, African Grey, thank you. Um, And just a little trivia, other presidents to have owned a bird. You guys ready? Yes. George Washington had a parrot. Thomas Jefferson had a mockingbird. James Madison had a macaw. Uh, Franklin Pierce owned two Japanese birds. Ben, I'm sorry, uh, James Buchanan is uh, said to have had a pair of bald eagles. Uh, Who has that for a pet? (laughs) The president. Oh, my God. Ab- Abraham. How American of him. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's son owned a turkey named Jack. Ulysses S. Grant reportedly had a parrot. Hayes apparently had a mockingbird and four canaries. Grover Cleveland's wife had mockingbirds and canaries. McKinley had a Mexican parrot named Washington Post. Teddy Roosevelt had a couple parrots. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had songbirds. Hart- Warren Harding's wife had canaries. Calvin Coolidge 
had some birds. Dwight Eisenhower had some birds. <laughs> J- JFK <laughs> had a canary and, a, and two parakeets, uh, Bluebell and Mary Bell. And Lyndon Johnson had lovebirds, but it has been nearly 50 years since the White House has had well, a Well, I mean, can we not say too, Lyndon Johnson had a ladybird. A ladybird. Lady <laughs> lady you know Ulysses S. Grant's parrot cuss, too. I'm sure. Does anybody hear like Mockingbird and instantly go into song in their head? Mm-hmm. Mock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's the Dumb and Dumber version. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> but is that's there, what I'm thinking Is of. there any other version? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think I want a bird. I feel I feel sad that they're all caged up. But I would want a cussing bird at my funeral. I think that yeah, would spice that things would up. That would make it worth it. <laughs> it we make that happen for you, okay? <laughs> We're going to make that happen for you. It'll break up the sadness. <laughs> well, it, it's been fun talking right-hand men and women. And women. Uh, so what are we talking about next time? I think we have some music coming up on the menu. Very good. Historical mm-hmm. music. Songs of significance. Wow. Uh, so we hope to, we hope you guys tune in for that. We hope you found this informational. Yeah, thanks for joining us for our second episode, and uh, tune in next time. Yeah.